1: This is a crowd
2: podcast. Hi there, this is the final episode in this series of Death of a Sports Star. If you've enjoyed it, can we ask a favour? Why not recommend us to a friend and if you use the Apple Podcast app, leave us a nice review to help other people find us. We'd really appreciate it. There are two Mike Webster stories. First, he's one of the greatest American football players who ever lived. Glory, money, and muscle. That's what some would like you to remember. But there's another story, one that begins before his death, but hits the headlines after. A story of drugs and guns, love and madness, a thousand little lies, and a couple of billion dollars. It's a story that could have died with Mike, and it would have done, except for two things, a young pathologist and a hunch. When you talk about Mike Webster, you can talk numbers. They come easy, the list's long, the achievement's impressive. Four times he wins the Super Bowl. He plays 245 games, more than any other player in his position. He plays 15 seasons for the Pittsburgh Steelers. That's a record too. But that's not how people remember Mike. Not by awards or accolades. They remember something harder to count, more difficult to quantify. They remember Mike's aura, the effect he has on teammates, on opponents, on fans. Because Mike's indestructible. The NFL in the 70s and 80s is a jungle. The hits are huge, and the padding's thin. Mike bears the scars. Right shoulder, right heel, five vertebrae, both knees, all gone. By the time he finishes, Joint shattered, cartilage shot. but Mike, you see, has something more. More than muscle, more than bulk. Mike has mentality. He has willpower. He can suppress pain. Soak it up like a sponge. He can play on. For one game, he shows up on crutches, his knees swollen. But he strips down, takes to the pitch and just has surgery to repair torn ligaments immediately after. Mind over matter, that's what some call it. And it's one game Mike can't win. The collisions and concussions coming at him again and again. His mind pushes him through what's impossible for normal people. But on the way, it's crumbling as well. Out of sight, In tiny protein deposits, deep in his brain, it's happening. In plain view, in the absences, the threats, the rambling notes, it's happening. No one wants to admit it. Not Mike, not his family, not his team. But it's happening. And it's going to change American football forever. It's a sunny July day in a nondescript city in Ohio. Mike Webster's dressed in a gold sports jacket and a pair of trousers that don't really fit. His thin hair scraped over the top of his head. He squints against the sun. Sweat glistens on his face. He looks uncomfortable. He looks old, more 65 than his actual 45 and Mike's holding his own head. It's 1997, and Mike's posing for photographs outside the NFL Hall of Fame. It's a building that looks like a church. It's where American football turns men into myths. Each year, a handful of players from the game are formally inducted, and this year is Mike's turn. Wearing the ceremonial jacket, Mike poses next to a bust of himself. It's destined for the museum behind him. An hour before, Mike makes a joke about it in front of thousands of fans. He stands and delivers the punchline before any of his former teammates or coaches can. He looks at the bust and says, Hopefully, there's enough shadow and curves and whatnot that it doesn't scare anybody away. It wouldn't. Mike's face is covered by dints and dents. His brow is a ridge of scar tissue. But that's all part of his appeal. He shares his playing era with OJ Simpson, the Californian running back with matinee idol looks and easy charm. Simpson spends time in country clubs and money on champagne. He schmoozes executives and seduces women. Mike's from a different America, small town rather than big time. Wide skies rather than vast cities. Grit rather than glitter. A star for a different audience. Back in 1916, Mike's grandfather boards a train in Indiana. He takes his wife, everything they own, and a team of mules. They travel 500 miles north to a huge plot of farmland. Hacked out of Wisconsin's forest, it's too far north for dairy cows. Too cold, the soil too poor for pasture. It's only good for potatoes. So Mike's grandfather gets down to work and it doesn't stop for three generations. Mike hauls bags of potatoes before school. He works machinery after. He's quiet, strong, obedient. He doesn't complain, doesn't shirk, doesn't make excuses. His family are carving out their own little bit of America, all graft, nothing given. At the same time, Mike's working on another frontier. He's toiling to improve himself. There's a square plot of land on the farm, a vast potato field surrounded on each of its four sides by a mile long strip of tarmac. As a high school football player, Mike runs around it time after time. Completing squares, racking up miles. But more than anything, Mike lifts in a rickety shed. He makes a weight bench out of cinder blocks and a plank of wood. He welds two buckets to a pipe and hoists it over his head. Early morning and late at night. He's not a small man, but he's not big either. Not by NFL standards. He only weighs 14 and a half stone when he leaves school. But he's got a strength that comes from hard days of hard work and the smarts to use it. A wrestler as well as a football player. He jams his six foot one-inch frame under taller opponents, throws them off balance, prizes them off the ground. And more than anything, he has a fear. A fear he's escaped from the farm, from a father who rules with violence, might fail. His parents divorce when he's ten. They're alcoholics, both of them. A year later, his mum and five siblings barely escape a fire that burns their house to the ground. One brother goes to prison, burglary, sex offences, nasty stuff, confusing stuff to Mike. Mike takes it all in. He doesn't tell his classmates. Instead, it looms in the back of his mind. A void he'll slip back into if he stops working if he stops lifting, if he stops learning. So he never stops. The Red Bull Inn's a quirky bar you can see just by looking at the outside. Mock Tudor beams, a painted pub sign, a bad copy of an English country pub that has somehow wound up in a smart suburb of Pittsburgh. It's strange, and that's before you go into the basement. Down there, under the wooden tables and patterned carpet, is an airless, windowless room. It's filled with weights, machines, and dumbbells. And during the off-season, you'll find Mike and a pack of his Pittsburgh Steelers teammates in there. The landlord of the bar loves powerlifting. He's happy to share his home gym with a team that brought Pittsburgh its first Super Bowl win. Together, they're getting big and quick. In his offseason with the Steelers, Mike piles on three-stone. Pittsburgh's defensive line are so imposing, they're nicknamed the Steel Curtain. Webster is so formidable, he earns a name of his own: Iron Mike. One of Webster's favourite ploys during the season, when the winter bites and the snow falls, is to cut his sleeves short for games. Just when everyone else is adding layers, his vast biceps stand exposed to the cold, psyching out the opposition. But it isn't just Mike's physique that's changing. His hair thins, acne blotches across his face. He was placid, now his temper flares more easily. That's what steroids do, and there is no law against them. It will be nearly 10 years before they're banned in the NFL. Until then, players at Pittsburgh, across the NFL, and gym-goers everywhere, get juiced. Bodies aren't built by amateurs in open-air gyms in California anymore. They're sculpted by chemically-enhanced professionals competing for titles and fame. Arnold Schwarzenegger, the most famous of all, is getting into movies. Big is beautiful, big is successful, and no one wants to ask too many questions about how the Steelers became such a massive force, especially not the people of Pittsburgh. In the space of six seasons, Mike and his team win four Super Bowls, No one's dominated like that before. The city's baseball team, the Pirates, win two World Series in the 1970s. The second comes in 79, the same year as the Steelers' Super Bowl win. Pittsburgh calls itself the City of Champions. The Steelers and Pirates get a White House reception. They stand next to President Jimmy Carter. It's all smiles and American triumph. And the city can forget its troubles. A steel industry slowly being squeezed by overseas undercutters. Rising unemployment, wars in Afghanistan, Iran, Nicaragua, that suck in more young men. Instead, Pittsburgh focuses on its teams. It focuses on Mike, their offensive captain, their blue-collar hero. Big enough to take the knocks, strong enough to come through the tough times. Beaten up, but unbroken, like Pittsburgh itself. Now another man holds Mike Webster's head. Bennett Amalu's 33, but he could pass for five years younger. He's smartly dressed, respected, and he's one of the few people in Pittsburgh who doesn't recognise the face he's staring at. When he parks his Mercedes in the parking lot at the morgue, Bennett can't understand why so many news trucks were parked outside the coroner's office. He asks his colleagues as he walks in, They tell him, it's Mike Webster. His body's here. Who's Mike Webster? He replies. Bennett's not from Pittsburgh. He's not a football fan. He might not know Mike Webster, but he knows death. Since arriving in the United States from Nigeria eight years before, Bennett has collected a wall full of degrees and qualifications anatomic pathology, clinical pathology forensic pathology, neuropathology, he specializes in finding the stories our bodies hide. If he didn't know Mike Webster was a football player before, he can see it now. He stares at the feet. He notes the cracking that runs deep across the soles. Mike's ankles, legs and knees are bloated by cellulitis and crisscrossed with varicose veins Bennett moves up further. He takes more notes. Herniated discs in the back, broken vertebrae. The muscles around Mike's shoulder joints are torn. The bones themselves are out of place. His heart's enlarged. His teeth are falling out. His face is full of dints and lumps. His brows a ridge of scar tissue. It marks where opponents' forearms have crunch Mike's helmet into his head, and where Mike used it as a battering ram in retaliation. There are several lifetimes of damage for one man who just made 50, but the cause of death isn't in doubt. It's cardiac arrest. It's clear. Bennett's assistant starts tidying away, and then Bennett stops them. He wants to take a closer look at Mike's brain On first glance, Mike's brain looks normal, but that in itself is strange because Mike did not lead a normal life. 15 years on the front line of the scrimmage take a toll. The helmet can only offer so much protection, especially when Mike and his opponents use them as weapons as much as defense. Mike's death certificate mentions depression, secondary to post-concussion syndrome. The damage caused by repeated blows to the head has been known about for centuries. Boxers' brains bumped against the inside of the skull will turn out bruised and blackened. But on Mike's brain, there was none of that. No mush, no bruises, normal color, regular size, and weight. It didn't add up. Mike's mental illness, the wrecked state of the rest of his body, and an apparently pristine brain. Bennett wants a closer look. He doesn't need to. The case is closed. The cause of death known. But he's intrigued. He can't let it lie. He can't let Mike, so reluctant to complain about his injuries in life, take this secret to the grave.
1: health and wellness, true crime and fiction. To find out more about Evergreen Podcasts, go to www.evergreenpodcast.com. Vamos!
2: Tao is the grease that helps the cogs turn. In a healthy brain, it's a protein that lubricates the cells, keeps memory, learning, and cognition sharp. That's what it does in a healthy brain, a brain that looks like Mike Webster's. A brain that looks like Mike Webster's to the naked eye, at least. Bennett pays for four thin slices from different parts of Mike's brain to be stained and mounted on slides. He pays from his own pocket because this public figure is now a private project. And when he looks through the end of the microscope, Bennett sees the blasted earth that football's left behind. The towel is clumped together. Instead of helping the brain function, it clogs it. In the parts that dictate Mike's mood, emotion, and decision-making, this sludge is everywhere. And Bennett's the first to see it, the first to find the microscopic mess caused by shunts, butts, and thumps of American football. The first to see that an apparently healthy brain can be nothing of the sort. Mike's family don't need telling, they already know. Most people, if they think about it, have an idea. Just two days before he stands before the Hall of Fame crowd, before he poses with a bust of his own head, ESPN runs a story. It says Mike's been living out of his car for 18 months, that he's been sleeping in railway stations, that his marriage has broken down, that he's deep in debt, that his health is ruined by the wear, tear and drugs. Webster alludes to it in his speech. This is what he says at the podium in Ohio. I've embarrassed myself over and over and over again, and I admit it. But you know what? if I concentrated every second, 24 hours a day for every moment of my life, to not, I'd still embarrass myself. And I'd make mistakes, and I'd screw up, but that's okay. But it's how he says it that's just as telling. He meanders. Others just stall, but Mike's eyes flick nervously from side to side. His speech is supposed to last eight minutes, It stretches to more than 20. Mike calls his family to their feet. His wife, Pamela, and four children accept the applause. They smile tightly. They know the reality is far worse than ESPN or anyone has guessed. They know the lethargy that engulfs him. The temper that carries him into screaming rages. The confusion as he urinates in the oven, not the toilet. They know about the guns he has bought. They know about the physical damage. The duct tape Mike wraps around his feet to close the lingering cuts. The super glue he used to stick his broken teeth back into his head. The taser he fires into his own arm to steady his shakes. They know Mike's mental pain. See, Mike would learn playbooks during his career, some three inches thick, He still reads books on World War II on Winston Churchill. And now he starts writing. A big notebook, the type lawyers use in court. Page after page, filled with his scribbled words. He's trying to explain what's going on in his head. It doesn't make sense, but it also makes perfect sense. He is what he writes on one page. Deep. Confusing twisting, fishing line tangled up, mess or confusing things go on all the time. After retiring, Mike builds a huge family home in Kansas. There's even a special phone booth so his teenage daughter can chat to her friends in privacy. But that's long gone, foreclosed and sold. The money Mike made has seeped away. His wife works as a cleaner, unable to rely on any financial support from Mike, unsure she'll have a way to pay for food and toilet roll. You can blame bad investments mainly, but bad relationships too. Because when Mike plays, NFL stars have the spotlight, but the team's owners have the small print. If you sign a contract with the team, that's it. You are theirs pretty much for life. If you reach the end of your contract and can't agree a new one, you can't walk into the open market. You can't close a deal with a new team. Your old owner still has rights to you. Rights the owner wants compensation for. Rights he uses to keep your wages down. In the decade before Mike's rookie season, an average of just three players a year moved teams in the entire league. And Mike retires four years before all that changes, before free agency comes in and the player market goes into hyperdrive and wages go through the roof. Players are better paid after 1993, but are they better looked after or just more expensive pieces of meat? Mike's death
3: and Bennett's work is about to find out.
2: In the 1950s, the tobacco industry had its own crisis. Cigarettes. Cowboys puffed while rounding up the cattle. Athletes endorsed them. Fred Flintstone was in an advert. Until scientists showed they caused cancer. How they ended lives instead of enhancing them. It was an extraordinary discovery. Required extraordinary action, so on a December evening in 1953, in a meeting room in the Luxury Plaza Hotel in Manhattan, executives from rival cigarette makers sat round a table. For decades after, they followed a plan. Defend profits and sold out. Sympathetic scientists were paid to suggest a problem was overstated or their opponents were politically motivated. They wanted to create a smokescreen to confuse their customers into keeping the habit. A year after Mike's death, two years before Bennett's groundbreaking findings are out, the NFL's own concussion committee releases a report. It lists concussions in the NFL over six seasons. The rates are relatively low, but they would be. Not every team's medical data is included. And the teams that do take part don't include every concussion. The report makes a big deal of the low number of concussions. It doesn't mention the holes in the data. When Bennett writes about what he's found in Mike's brain, the protein clumps that come from repeated brain trauma, the NFL's concussion committee respond. They get in contact straight away, not to see Bennett's work in full, not to give him a job, not to thank him. This is what they say. They say Bennett is completely wrong. So Bennett releases a second paper, this time looking at the brain of one of Mike's former teammates. A teammate who took his own life by drinking a gallon of antifreeze. A teammate whose brain is damaged in the same way as Mike's. The NFL's group of doctors and trainers say Bennett's work is not appropriate science. They say it's purely speculative. Did the NFL, like its players, work off a playbook? Did it adopt the same tactics as the tobacco industry? Did it try to mislead the public and its players to keep the profits rolling in? They say no, but others see the similarities. They see the PR firms and lawyers who worked for both the cigarette makers and the NFL and can't believe it's a coincidence. And it ends the same way. Just like the tobacco industry, the NFL folds under the weight of evidence. Mike is the first diagnosis, but thousands more follow. In 2013, facing a lawsuit brought by more than 4,500 players, the NFL settle. Some guess it'll cost them around $2 billion when all is said and paid. But the compensation isn't for every player. Not every brain is valued the same. To be eligible, players must have been diagnosed with chronic traumatic encephalopathy before 2015. Mike, thanks to Bennett, was the very first. But there's another condition too. The families of those who died before 2006 won't be paid. Mike died in 2002.
0: Two years before Mike's death,
2: his son Garrett moves in with him. Garrett is 16, but after the divorce, the wondering, the rage, he's caring for Mike as much as the other way around. The pair sleep on a mattress on the floor of a rented apartment. Empty pizza boxes around them. The bills are still arriving for Mike. He can't always afford the medicine he needs. And he shakes so hard some mornings that Garrett won't get in the car with him to go to school. This is where American football has put Mike. But it hasn't left him. And he won't quit it either. Because Garrett, six foot nine and 24 stone, wants to play pro. He's seen how football delivered adulation and then desolation to his father, but he wants to take his chance to write his own story to change the ending. And he's doing it, with or without Mike. So Mike becomes a personal coach to his son. He talks Garrett through plays, analyzes videos of his matches, passes on the tricks and tips. Mike's on the touchline at his high school games. He keeps it low key. He doesn't want to talk about the glory days. He doesn't want to talk about the present either. He just wants to watch his son. Madness, they say is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. It doesn't make sense. Garrett following his father into football. Mike helping his son along the path he trod. None of it makes sense. But there is madness in love too. The drive to please a father, the desire to see a son succeed, a belief that this time, together, you can beat the odds. It's after one of Garrett's Friday night games that Mike feels ill. As the weekend wears on, he gets worse. Garrett pleads with him to go to hospital. Mike doesn't have health insurance to cover him or the cash to pay. So once again, like the kid on the potato farm and the man in the NFL, he tries to tough it out tries to face down the pain. Mike wakes up on Sunday morning, deathly pale. His lips are purple. By the evening, he relents. In the emergency room, doctors tell Mike he's had a heart attack. They try to stabilise his tired, broken body. They try to get bloated, damaged organs to function. But the damage is too deep. Mike slips into a coma. By Tuesday, he's dead. The TV news trucks roll to the morgue. Bennett Malu goes to work. The Websters mourn. Unaware, Mike's greatest impact on American football is yet to come. Four days after Mike's death, the evening after his funeral, there's a high school football match. Before kickoff, there's a moment's silence. In the fourth quarter. The home team's giant defensive tackle sacks the opposition quarterback and, with black sweatbands wrapped around huge biceps, points to the sky. At full time, the home team hang back to let him walk off the field first. Then from the middle of their post-match huddle, a chant rises. Webster. 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 The same chant that rang around the Steelers' stadium It's for Garrett in the middle of the huddle. It's for Mike. It's for the mindless joy of victory. This episode of Death of a Sports Star was written by Mike Henson and performed by me, Elroy Spoonface Powell, Spoon the Voice Guy. It was edited by Charlie Frost. For research, we read League of Denial, the book by ESPN reporters Mark Wadder and Steve Fainaru on Mike Webster's case and the NFL's attitude to concussion. We also used the archives of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, Reader's Digest, the New York Times, and the Pro Football Hall of Fame. The music we used is from our partners, BMG Production Music. If you enjoyed this episode, There are more you can listen to. Try the story of Pat Tillman, the all-American hero who gave up a career in the NFL to fight in Afghanistan, but who was disillusioned by the war he found himself fighting in. Or Ayrton Senna, the greatest motor racer the world had seen, the man who made cars dance. And we have another series called Death of a Rockstar, which is about Bob Marley, Amy Winehouse, Michael Jackson, and more. Check that out by searching for Death of a Rockstar in your podcast app. Thanks for listening to this series of Death of a Sports Star.
3: Crowd Network, a place where you belong. the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.
0: Running should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. Whether you're training for your first 5k or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you. Get ready race fans, because the ultimate NASCAR experience is about to hit the airwaves. Welcome to Pit Pass NASCAR, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart pounding world of NASCAR racing. Join us each week as we bring you closer to the NASCAR action with exclusive interviews and all the news and rumors you need with your
2: favorite drivers, team members, and industry insiders. So whether you're a fan of super
0: speedways, short ovals, or road racing, or you've just watched Talladega Nights, Pit Pass NASCAR is the podcast you've been waiting for. Get ready to fuel your passion for NASCAR like never before.
3: Subscribe now to Pit Pass NASCAR on your favorite podcast platform, or head to evergreenpodcast.com and get ready to join us. Launching in the fall on Evergreen Podcast Network.
0: Follow us on social media at hitpass underscore NASCAR to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the podcast.